All right. For those of you who are new to Revolution Church, we like to go through books of the Bible. And right now we're in the book of Mark. And let me tell you that um, I'm really exceptionally excited about today's message because if you, um, if if you want to save this on the YouVersion app, I strongly recommend you do, do so because there's a lot of information on this that you will want to, to see and follow later on for follow-up. So you definitely want to save that. And here's how. If you're on the YouVersion, you go to events, but you go to more below, uh, and then go to events, and in the top right, just click save, and that'll stay on your phone, and you'll be glad you did. I think you'll, tell, you'll know why. Um, Aureli's not with us this morning, so I'm going to ask you to help me to read the scripture, okay? So I'm going to read the first slide. Oh, she is here. Aureli. Aureli, get up here. Okay. Good deal. You go to this microphone right here for me. Good deal. Did you bring Larry with you? There's Larry. No, there's a, where's no, Larry? he's at work. Oh, he's at work. Okay, well, I'm glad you came. So here you go, Aureli. It's right there in front of you. And everybody follow along as Aureli reads for us this morning. Mark 4, 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teachings, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground when it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thrones, and the thrones grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he, has, he was alone, Those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in a parable, so that they may indeed see but not pierce, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown into them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then... When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it it proves unfruitful. But those those that were with sown on the good soil and the ones who hear the word out and accept it and be fruit and bear fruit 30fold and 60fold and 100fold and he said to them is a lamp brought into to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest nor anything in, nor is anything secret except to come to light If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear with the measures you use. It will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Amen. Thank you, Aureli. All right, give her a hand. All right, cool. So, many people have different titles for this parable. It's one of Jesus' most famous. Some people call it the parable of the sower, but 
Is that really what's being analyzed here? I, I wonder. Uh, some people call it the parable of the seed. But really, I think the most accurate name for this is the parable of the soils. Because the sower is the same. As you probably already saw, the sower is Jesus. He stays the same. The seed is the same. The seed is the word of God. What is different in many cases is the different soils. So we're going to call it that for the sake of the discussion this morning. So from what you just saw, what is the field? What is the field? The people of the, the world. The people of the world. Okay, good. And then, you're not used to so much questions here. We're going to ask questions. So wh who is the sower? We already talked about that. Right. But are we also not supposed to sow seed ourselves? So as I'm studying this answer, the best answer I come with is it's Jesus through his body, the church. So Jesus is sowing the seed, but how does he do it? He expects you and I to spread the word of God. So it's Jesus through us, through the body of Christ. And uh, what is the seed? It's the word of God, right? And uh, we know what kind of seed it is. We think it's corn. Why? Because he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay. All right. Uh, now, the soil. <laughs> That's a corny joke, right, Patrick? Okay. Um, the soil. Now, okay, this may sound like a trick question. How many types of soil? Well, let me, well, actually, let me ask that question later. What is the soil? What is the soil? It's the heart. It's, it's the human heart, okay? We receive the word of God in heart. And so here's the question is, how many kinds of soil did we just read about? Most people would say four, but if you want to be really technical, the good seed, the good soil had 30, 60, and 100 fold for a total of six, okay? But Four, I can understand why, but you could make this good soil broken down into three more subsets. But we'll get into that later. Um, it's interesting that when Jesus shared this parable, he spoke to what kind of crowd? A large crowd. You see this trend in Jesus' ministry that the bigger the crowd, the more difficult the sermon, not the other way around. You know, most people are like, oh, Easter Sunday, you've got to see, preach a very basic message because you've got a lot of people who are CEOs, you know, they're Christmas and Easter only. So you've got to just kind of water down the message. And Jesus does the exact opposite. He preaches hard when there's a bigger crowd. And you know what he does? He thins the crowd out. Because he even told them why later in Matthew, he tells us more detail, where he says, you're only coming for the free fish sandwiches and the miracles. That's why you're coming. And so he, he said, unless you're willing to drink of my my blood and my eat of my flesh you're not gonna be one of my disciples and everybody's like what cannibalism what are you talking about jesus man forget this guy we're gonna go away and and then he's standing there and all there is is the 12 disciples he says are you two gonna go away and peter says the most amazing words he said where will we go lord only you have the words of eternal life so and you know what our human nature is though if you want a big church preach a very basic message um, I had uh, a family that visited our church recently. I talked to him on the phone because they had some questions about revolution. And he said he'd visited several churches in Pearland, four to be exact. He said this was the only church that preached the Bible verse by verse. He said one, one church, it was a bigger church, the guy got up, read one verse, and did 25 minutes of pop psychology and, and closed in prayer. And they were, they were so disappointed. And let me tell you, whether Gary's the pastor or whoever's the pastor of the church, we need to be committed to the word of God, verse by verse, going through it the way it's taught, the way it's written. And, and, and we don't want to preach. I'm not against mega churches. I used to attend one. I'm, I'm not saying they're all bad. That, don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I'm saying is if you want to try to grow a church by being watering down the word of God, it's a big mistake. It's a big mistake. Jesus didn't do it that way. He, the larger the crowd, the harder his preaching was. And he said, hey, listen... Pay careful attention to what you hear and behold. Listen refers to the ears. Behold refers to the eyes. As Christians, we need to be very careful what we listen to and what we see and pay close attention to the word of God as it's being taught. And he says you need to pay attention not only to how you hear, but what you hear. Based on what Jesus said, he'd said in the latter days, many false prophets would arrive, arise and say, oh, Jesus is here, Jesus is there, Jesus is this and all that stuff. And he said, don't listen to all of them. And, and we see this, an infiltration in, our, in, the, in social media today, whether it's YouTube or anything you'll see on television or stream, the majority of what's being taught out there is not the true gospel. Now, Again, I'm not saying this, we're a cult. We're the only ones teaching. There are thousands and millions of good Bible-believing churches. 
but there are also many of them that are preaching a false gospel of, you know, Jesus is Santa Claus, and he'll give you everything you want, and all you have to do is name it and claim it and all that stuff, and they, the Christian life is easy. That is so not true. That is so counter to what the Bible clearly teaches. Um, and he says, those around him uh, with the 12 asked, and I don't want to overlook this simple phrase right here, that when you come across stuff that Jesus is speaking about and you don't understand, what should we do? Ask. Jesus' half-brother James wrote in his first chapter of his book, if any man lacks wisdom, what should he do? Ask of God. And man, it, it is amazing that not only do we have a book, but we, get, we are in touch with the author of the book to tell us what it means. You know, the Holy Spirit becomes our teacher and we can be reading scripture and if it can be difficult, we're supposed to study and study, but we're also supposed to ask God for wisdom as we read. If you're struggling in your Bible reading, you're like, man, I don't understand thing I just read. I would encourage you, keep studying, keep working, but ask. Ask God with a humble heart to teach you what the word of God is saying. We, we should be doing that even now as I'm teaching and as we're receiving the word of God to be asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us. He says to you has been, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And you know what that secret was? It was himself. That he was the king bringing the kingdom. He said, I'm here to answer the questions about the kingdom of God when I speak in parables. Um, and he said, he said, here's why. Here's why I speak in these tough parables. So that, here's the purpose, that indeed they may see but not perceive. You know how you can see something but you don't understand it? Like when we say, do you see what I'm saying? We're like, well, I can see with my eyes that you're talking to me. No, no, do you see? Do you perceive? And he says, and indeed that they may hear but not what? Understand or could be comprehend. And he said, the whole reason I do this is because I want the gospel to be something that people have to reach for. Now, don't hear me again wrong. You don't have to work to be saved, but you do have to have a desire to want to understand it. And the way that Jesus could separate out those who are true followers of his to those who are just fake and going along with it is to make the gospel something that you have to just ask for wisdom for to understand. It's not something he just lays it out super simple because he's trying to divide the sheep from the goats. And, and he said that he didn't want forgiveness to be something easy in the sense of understanding it. Does that make sense? I know I'm probably confused some of it, but stay with me here, okay? So the there's an application here that's primarily to the unconverted. And I'm going to use that word. We could say lost. You could say unbelievers. But there's also application here for the converted or the saved. In, in these six types of soils. Let's go through them here. So first of all, there's the hardened soil. The hardened soil. Why is it hard? It's because people have been walking on it. You see many times a farm, like there would be a section, maybe a, the size of this room, on, on either side of it, there would be a path so people could walk around and not trample on the man's corn or wheat or barley, whatever's growing there. And so you had a path. But as he's sowing seed, if the carpet here is the, is the soil, I'm casting seeds, some of it's going to get over here on the hard spot. And people's hearts are hardened by life circumstances. It says when they hear, they need to hear. And um, Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. People don't come to Christ because you teach pop psychology or you teach on the latest trends or cultural norms or cultural changes. People come to Christ through the word of God. So we'll say, well, you know, the Bible's thousands of years old. Yes, it is. But it was written by an eternal God who it, the, the word of God lives and breathes and abides forever. It's just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago as it was 5,000 years ago. It, it is, it's the word of God because Jesus Christ is the one who wrote it. He's the one that speaks it. And so therefore, people will not come to Christ because you share your amazing testimony. I, I want you to share your testimony. That's great. But what do people need to be converted? What do they need to have faith? They need the word of God. If all you do is simply quote John 3.16, which I'm sure 95% of you know, just share that with them. But share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not how cool you are and how cool your story is. It's how amazing God is and how great his love is. That's what changes hearts and they need the word of God. Um, 1 Peter 1.23 says, Since you have been born again, you know, converted, 
Not of perishable seed. Here's the whole seed picture. Not the seed that rots or corrupts and goes away, but it's imperishable, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. How are people born again? They hear scripture. They hear the word of God. They hear the gospel being preached. And that's what we need to share with them. That's why we need to memorize scripture. So we need to have a Bible handy with us so we can share the gospel. And so when they hear, it says Satan, which Jesus will translate later as the birds, immediately comes. This is a spiritual battle. Even right now going on, while as I'm sharing the word of God with you, the word of God is going out, okay? And I'm not saying every word I speak is the word of God. I'm saying when I quote scripture, that's the word of God. I'm teaching the scripture to help you understand. Satan is fighting you. Satan is fighting believers and unbelievers, trying to distract you, trying to make your minds go elsewhere. He's trying to pluck up the seed on the hardened path. And what does he do? He takes away the word, because Satan knows the word is what's most powerful. Satan knows people need the word to have faith so that they can be saved. And that, that's the word that is sown in them. And so what we need to be doing is sharing the word of God with other people and sowing that seed that so they can plant, plant it. So how does Satan pluck seed? How does he do it? Well, first of all, the beaten or the hardened hearts are because of life circumstances. People go through life and they feel like they're stepped on by others. Sin will harden your heart. The more you sin, the harder your heart uh, grows. And you, you can think of any particular sin, maybe one you're struggling with right now. The first time you did it, you felt so horrible. You probably cried. You probably just felt sick about it for a long time. But the second time you did it, you felt bad, but not so bad. And by the 8th, 9th, 10th, 12th, 13th time you've done it, it's like, eh, no big deal. What's happening there? Your heart's becoming hardened. You're letting sin just trample on your heart and squish down that soil to where when the seed is dropped, you can sit in church and not even be convicted anymore. It's like, this stuff doesn't bother me. The word of God doesn't change me. In fact, I'm starting to find it boring. And, it, and with sin, more and more sin becomes more and more age. And age and the combination of that uh, is what hardens hearts. Let me just, I'm, let me share some, a lot of statistics here with you. Here's the ages at which people who are saved when they accepted Christ. Only 1% or less have accepted Christ's ages 0 to 4. And that's with good reason because, uh, first of all, 0, you can't, you can't understand the gospel. 4, I'm pretty skeptical whether you can hear the gospel, but I, I won't say that that's not possible. Okay, I, I've heard people who say that they were saved, that they understood the gospel age 4. If so, more power to them. But most 4-year-olds can't cannot understand the concept, I'm a sinner, I've sinned against a holy God, but he came to earth and died for me. Most people can't get that. But when do the overwhelming majority of people get saved? Between ages what? Four and 14. What should that tell us as a church? That children's ministry is important. Man, don't ever get to the point where you're like, man, there's so many kids down here and they're knocking things over and look at these, there's a hole in the wall because of these kids, blah, blah, blah. You know what? <laughs> Praise God for the holes in the walls. Praise God for the noise while Brother Gary's preaching. Praise God for the kids getting up and down and going to the bathroom when we're singing. You know, some of it's annoying, as kids can be. Amen? Amen. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we love them anyway, right? And this is why when a church doesn't have a bunch of 4 to 14-year-olds, it's on its way down. It's dying. And we don't ever want to be that way. If 85% of people who became, became Christians did so at this age, and this would be me, and I'm sure it's most of you, I was nine years old. And then 15 to 30, 10%. And what's interesting, in a lot of churches, traditionally, if as the church grows, and as we're going, one of the first people they hire is a youth pastor. And I was a youth pastor, okay? I was a youth pastor for 10 years at one church and seven years at another church. And I believe in youth ministry, but I don't believe it's the biggest priority. Because you know what's happened for two generations of youth ministry? You have teenagers for a few years, they go off to college, and guess what? They stopped going to church. It's like you just poured thousands of dollars and lots of time into these teens and for just for them to go off to Baylor and party or to go off to UT or whatever and then just deny they even became a Christian. And you know what? What you're seeing a trend in churches now, and I think it's a very wise one, is one of the first things they hire is a children's minister. The numbers don't lie. And I'll tell you what, from my youth ministry, like, let me just give you an example. At Berean, my first church on the north side of Houston in Greens Point, we had a humongous youth ministry. We had an even bigger children's ministry. We had hundreds of kids every Wednesday night learning scripture in Awana. And we have kids, I can tell you who they are to this day, that they started off in cubbies. Remember cubbies? Some of you all know. And they are still serving the Lord today because we poured so much of the word of God 
into them then. And I know I can name dozens of them still serving the Lord. And so anyway, this is so important that we as a church focus on these things. Um, so what should we do about these numbers? Number one, we should equip parents of young children to live and teach them the gospel. The best thing we can do for all of you who have kids ages four, four to 14 is equip you to lead your child to Christ. Now, if they get, if Miss Tammy, you know, leads them to Christ over here in Children's Church, great, praise God. But for every one of them, I want five that say, you know what, my child trusted Christ tonight. We were praying our prayers at bedtime and they, they trusted the Lord. Mom and dad led them to Christ. That, we need to equip you to do that and we will continue to do that. Number two, we need to invest money and time in children's ministries. Our church reflects that in our budget. As we make the next budget for next year with a building, you're gonna see more and more money flowing into children's ministry, things like vacation Bible school, church camp. And let me tell you something, right now what's going on in this room beside us, they are not just coloring. They are hearing, um, Heather and Heather and Tammy and the other adults that teach them over there and Rick's over there sometimes, they get the Bible. And then they get a coloring sheet or a craft that reminds them of what the lesson was about so they can go home and tell mom and dad about it. We need to make sure that's always a priority. The third thing is we need to build a pipeline of young leaders that are involved and trained in ministry. We should always be passing the baton to those behind us. Did y'all notice that Sam played bass this morning? Did a good job. Good job, Sam. Now, do we have better bass players in this church? Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. But it's not about us older guys. It's about the younger men and women getting the opportunity to serve God in that way. We need to always think that way. Pass the baton. Pass the baton. You know what happens to churches that hold the baton? They die. And they we're, we're doing church our way. We're not singing, singing that modern music. We're not bringing any rap into the church. We're not doing that. It's of the devil. And we're not going to sing Amazing Grace all the way to the grave. That's what they're going to do. I'm not against Amazing Grace. Because if that's all you're singing is out of the hymns and you're not doing anything for the next generation, you're going to lose the next generation. The next thing is we need to reach young families. And we need to especially reach dads. Okay? And let me tell you why. And especially dads in the community. Um, Three and a half percent of a family gets saved when the child gets saved first. So if we do children's ministry for the community and we bring in a child and that seven-year-old gets saved, only three, three and a half percent of the time will the rest of the family get saved. If we reach a mom, 17% of those families will become Christians if the mom gets saved first. But if we reach the dad, 93% of families, all of them get saved if dad gets saved. So you know what we're going to be doing as a church more and more? We're going to be reaching out to men. Well, that's why on Wednesday nights and Saturday mornings, I disciple men. That's why we do it. We just had a men's retreat. We do things for men because if you reach the men, you reach the family. And you may say, oh, Gary, that's sexist, that's chauvinistic, whatever. I'm just telling you the way God made us, okay? Women love church and women will come to church all the time. But unless things are done for the men and, and to reach the men, the women will follow, but the men will not if it's all female-oriented. So what should we do about this statistic right here? Number one, we should build relationships with men in the community. And you guys need to be thinking and praying about how we can do even more than we've done so we can continue to share the gospel. Number two, we need to make church more masculine and less feminine. You know, I know, right? We're going we're gonna to have hunting animals all over the wall, okay? Shotguns, all that. But you know what's funny is in some churches, you look at the front of the church, you know what it looks like? Grandma's living room. That's what it looks like. And I, I won't say anything else. Okay. But, and you, and you know what? If you're a 24-year-old guy and you walk in and it looks like Grandma's living room, you think that's a church you want to hang with? No. We need, I'm not saying it's all about the, the look and the feel, but we need to not put things in people's way that offend them or, or turn them off. Um, we need to have events that men are interested in, which we've done and we will continue to do. Um, and we need to disciple younger men. We need to disciple women too, but we need to make this the priority. You know what my prayer is? I'm 57 years old, so I'm not about to kick the bucket, but yet I, I know I want to be thinking years ahead. I am praying every day that God raises up a young man within this church to be the next pastor. I think that'd be amazing. Now, God may just choose to do it a different way, but it's not going to stop me from discipling young men to know the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, to increase the number of elders we have in the church. We're, we're an elder-led church, for those of you who are new. Uh, we have three elders. We're working on a fourth right now. We want to get that number up to even more. Um, 
Hardened soul. So let's get back to that. How does Satan pluck the seed? Hardened hearts because of life circumstances. Hardened hearts because of sin and because of age. And another thing is that hardens hearts is when people step on their hearts with false teaching. False teaching. They twist scripture. And then there's another thing. is distractions. Satan can pluck up the seed because he can, he can get us sidetracked. And that's why it's so important that on Sunday morning we're focused. I tell my kids... Go to the bathroom before church. Get a drink of water before church. By the time, you, if you get up and down three times during church and someone's like not paying attention and they're all distracted and, and flustered by it, right at the same time I'm saying you need to accept Christ your Savior, that's plucking up seed. You know, I, I know the Holy Spirit is powerful, but the Holy Spirit also wants us to all be on the same. That's why over and over in the New Testament you hear, be of one mind and of one accord. And they met in the Holy Spirit. And you think that's happened when everybody's like all over the place and just fidgeting and whatever. We need to be focused on what the Word of God is saying. First Thessalonians 3, Paul was super concerned about this after he started this church, when he left them, that they would be distracted. He said, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent someone, is what he's implying, to learn about your faith. Because he was afraid that they'd fallen away. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor, all that work we did to start this church would be in vain. And so that's what we need to do is we need to make sure we pray against Satan that he doesn't pluck up seed so that distractions and all these other things take away the word of God. So how can we prevent Satan from doing that? Well, for those who have hardened hearts because of life's circumstances, help them to understand that the world is painful, but it's not because of God. It's because of sin. The most common question that I hear and many of you will hear is, if God is such a loving God, why does he allow so much pain and suffering? And what they do, instead of causing that, them to believe in God, they cause it, it causes them to not believe in God. And what we need to help them understand is, it's not God's fault, it's our choices. Every pain that you can point to almost is caused by someone else trying to hurt someone else or take something from someone else. And we're the ones, we're the sinners. God is the Savior and it's not his fault. And so if you say though that there's no God because he allows suffering, then let me tell you something. You have a bigger problem. If you say, well, how could, I don't believe in God because well, how can a living God allow all this pain and suffering? Well, let's say there is no God. Then let me ask you a question. How do you explain all the pain and suffering? Because suffering is good and it's a big part of natural selection. If there is no God and we all evolved, then Darwin is right that, that death and pain and suffering improve the race. You see, every time a pride of lions surround a herd of antelope and they kill two or three young babies or some old ones that are not as able to run and fast, they're purifying the herd, right? Isn't that evolution? The survival of the fittest. So wait a minute. If, why should you have a problem with this? That's evolution. That's your God. That's what you don't believe in God. You believe that, that evolution is what runs everything and that we've all advanced and we've all evolved and we've all become better and better because of why? Because of pain and suffering. Kill off all the old. Kill off all the weak. Let the strong survive and improve the race. Then why would you have a problem with Hitler? If Hitler invades Poland, a weaker nation, and wipes them out, and Germany was the stronger, why would you have a problem with that? That's what evolution teaches, right? If someone can rob and beat someone else and take their money, survival of the fittest. So you want to explain pain and suffering by saying there is no God? Then you got a bigger problem. I can't give you all the answers as to why God allows pain and suffering. And, and, and philosophers have already dismissed the idea of, well, you know, what about senseless pain and suffering? Just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't, make, doesn't mean it doesn't make sense to God. We often say, no pain, no what? No gain. You know, every single person in this room over age 14 can point to a difficult time in your life where you would not want to go through that ever again, but you are thankful that it happened and you're stronger today. So yes, God does allow pain and suffering. And God does it for a reason. He does it for a purpose. The greatest pain and suffering the universe has ever known was on the cross of Jesus Christ. And look what it accomplished. It, it provided forgiveness and eternal life for all who would believe. So pain and suffering does accomplish something. We can't explain every type of pain. We can't explain every type of suffering. But we have a better answer than, than there is no God. Otherwise, it all definitely does not make sense. 
So what we need to do is reach the lost while they are young and before their hearts are hardened. Because the number of people who get saved after age 30 goes down to ridiculously low numbers. So let's stay committed to sound theology. Let's stay committed to the word of God as taught. Not someone just pulling verses out of context and just preaching all kinds of things that's not in the Bible. Let's minimize distractions by worshiping God passionately. And loving people genuinely is what breaks up hard hearts. So let's take someone who's 28. Their mom died of cancer when they were 12. They were sexually abused when they were nine. Their, their wife let them, left them at age 26, and they are hard. I don't know, how could there be a God? All these bad things have happened to me. I've cried out to help him, in, and what did he do? All he did was give me pain. How do you fix that? How do you, how do you break up that fallow ground? Uh, I want to share a story with you of someone who was in that exact same, not exact same, but a very similar situation. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield, and she earned her PhD from Ohio State University in English Literature. She served in the English Department and Women's Studies program at Syracuse University from 92 to 02, and during an academic career, she published a book as well as many articles. Much of her work was on feminist theory, queer theory, and the 19th century British literature. Butterfield was also in a committed homosexual relationship, as well as served as the faculty advisor for a number of gay and lesbian student groups on campus. And if it wasn't clear, she was a very outspoken atheist. But watch how her life changed. Is it possible to do that one or no? Two seconds, two minutes. All right, so um, I'm going to give him two minutes. I'm going to go to the next thing here. So loving people genuinely is what breaks up soil. Many of you can think of someone you know that has a hard heart towards God. And let me tell you something. While they do need the word of God, the seed, if you just keep dropping seed on a hard heart, is it going to go anywhere? You know what puts a shovel and a spade into that life to turn that soil over it's you reaching into their lives with your heart and with your hands and loving them and caring for them and to where and you know what most people that are atheists or non-believers all they've encountered is an argument and what they need is a person to love them to love them genuinely whether get this whether they ever get saved or not they don't need to feel like they're a project Oh, I'm loving you because I'm trying to get you to go to church so you can become one of us. Oh, but you're not coming anymore, so forget you. I don't care if you love them to the day they die. You need to love them genuinely. Are we close? Let me go to another one here real quick. Um, so we all can name people that fall in that situation. The next one is going to be the rocky soil. And am I still waiting or should I go there? This is like mega mine. Itty bitty bitty titty weeny fit. All right, there we go. We are going high tech here this morning. See, now we know Matt is human. We thought he was perfect. I mean, he never makes mistakes, He's, but he made it. All right, there we go. Volume. Okay. It's worth the wait. Here we go. I was raised in an Italian family. There were some issues in my house that made it almost impossible to have people in. So hospitality didn't really become endemic to my life until I had set up a home of my own. I was a professor at Syracuse. I lived as an out lesbian feminist in New York in our LGBTQ community. Somebody's home was open every night of the week. And there was never a question, where will I go if I need help? Because the community itself is organic and fluid, and that was how we dealt with crises. After I wrote my tenure book, I really wanted to write a book that was on my heart. Why is the religious right such a hateful community? And why do they hate people like me? I was on a war against two things, patriarchy and stupid. So I was really curious to know why relatively decent people would use the Bible in such a hateful way. So I wrote an editorial and it 
brought all kinds of attention my way, which I didn't really expect, but one of the things that brought my way was a letter from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. When Ken and his wife Floyd invited me to dinner, I was happy. I, th I thought of Ken as my unpaid research assistant. And they were fine with the fact that I, I wanted to read the Bible to critique. That began a research to me that changed my life. But it wasn't research that changed my life. In Ken and Floyd's home, the way that they practiced hospitality became a living, breathing example of the theology that they were teaching. After my first dinner at Ken and Floyd's house, Ken gave me a big hug, Floyd gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. We said, we'll catch up next week. This was fun, can't wait to do it again. They did not share the gospel with me and they did not invite me to church. And that was so wonderful because what it showed to me was that they didn't see me as a project. They actually saw me as a neighbor. Now, I didn't step foot in the church for two years, but every week I was in their home. And every week, it was clear that pretty much anything could go. We could ask anything, Ken and Floyd were fine. And that process of dialogue and table fellowship was compelling. It was deeply compelling. I did not come to faith because I stopped feeling like a lesbian. It's not that I got all of my worldview issues just completely cemented with a happy Christian evangelism, not at all. I came to faith because I became convicted that Jesus is who he says he is. Ephesians 4.29 is our watchword, that we are to impart grace to the hearer. I might not agree with everything that you hold to be near and dear, but because we are neighbors, I don't have to say everything that's on my heart. And you don't have to say everything that's on your heart right now. We can put some of our worldview issues aside. And over years of this, the gospel takes on a momentum that is compelling to people. I think we need to give each other the reminder that it's God who saves. It's not about certainly us being perfect or our words being perfect, but show up we must in the lives of unbelievers. What comes naturally to me and what comes naturally to you is to hang out with people who are like us, <laughs> people who can maybe finish our sentences, people who don't scare us. But hospitality, biblically speaking, takes strangers and makes them neighbors and takes neighbors makes them family of God. It's a great joy to see the gospel bring people together who are supposed to be enemies. And it's a great joy to know that God never gets the address wrong. And if your neighbors aren't people you know yet, there's a blessing waiting for you. Amen. So the best part of Revolution Church is not the building we meet in, whether it's this one or down the road. It's the 35 homes that make up our church that are all points of light to this community. And you can use your home as a way to build relationships and share the love of Jesus, which will get, break up that ground so that you can share the gospel of Jesus. All right, the next point here is the rocky soil. And I'm going to move a little quicker here. So the rocky soil, it's, it's when, again, when they hear the word, this is what the difference maker, they have to hear the word, they immediately receive it. Notice that they, there's a reception here, and they even receive with joy. So my question is, these are people who are not saved because they bear no fruit, okay? You know the difference between saved and lost in this parable is the ones who bear fruit are saved. The ones that don't bear any fruit, even though there's a sprout and all kinds of things going on, it's showing that they're truly not saved. So what are they so excited about? Many people come to religion, not Jesus, because they think religion will fix my marriage or religion will get me a better job. Or if I do this for God, God does this for me. So they get excited about all the possibilities and then when it doesn't happen, they're like, oh, I tried Christianity. No, you didn't. 
You may have tried Christianity, but you didn't try Christ. You didn't enter into a true relationship with him. And so there's therefore no root in themselves. It doesn't sink down deep into their life, into who they are. And so as soon as it becomes difficult to become a Christian, difficult to be a Christian, they're out of there. And especially the the difficulty because of the word. It's like, oh, you actually believe the Bible? That's silly stuff. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, maybe I don't believe it. And they start to shy away from all of it. And then immediately they fall away. So immediately they receive it. Immediately they fall away. And how many times have we seen that? Where someone gets all excited, maybe even gets baptized, and man, they are excited, and then boom, they don't act like they're a believer. The problem is not that they were a believer and they've fallen away and lost their salvation. The problem is they never were because they never bore fruit. So what do we do about the soil that's on rocky ground? First of all, we need to avoid the prosperity gospel and all the things that make Christianity seem like it's a bed of roses. Oh, Christianity's wonderful. God's gonna heal you. He's gonna get rid of all your diseases. He's gonna do all these things and he heals every time. He wants everybody rich. He wants everybody to have Rolex. And you know what that does? That sets them up like, well, I've been a Christian for eight years now and none of that's happened to me. And we're setting them up for failure. And we also need to avoid easy believism. All right, who wants to go to heaven when you die? Raise your hand. Who doesn't want to go to hell when you die? Yeah, okay. All right, pray this prayer. Jesus, forgive me my sins. Amen. Hey, you're all saved. Let's get baptized. And we're like, what? You didn't talk about the lordship of Jesus Christ at all, how you need to give your life, you need to count the cost. You just made it super easy. Fill out this card and great. And now we've got people walking around with these cards or these baptismal certificates thinking, I'm on my way to heaven. Yeah, I'm living with my girlfriend and getting partying every weekend, but hey, I'm on my way to heaven because God forgives all sin, right? And they're going to be shocked when they stand before Jesus Christ says, depart from me. I never knew you. Again, I'm not saying you have to be a good person to go to heaven. Don't hear that. I'm saying you need to truly trust Christ to save you and give your life to him. Jesus says, if you follow me, you're a believer. Are you following so we need to get rid of that stuff and not present that because that's what sets people up for failure and thinking they're saved. And we need to share the true gospel over seeing Christ as Lord and Savior. So now we move on to the thorny soil. The thorny soil has weeds. It's among the thorns. You notice that's where the seed is sown. We need to cast seeds in the people who have complicated lives. Many, te- many people make the mistake of, well, their life's kind of crazy right now. I don't want to really share the gospel with them right now. No, you need to cast the seed among the thorns and take that chance. So they hear the word, but here's what happens. The cares of this world, all the things. They've got a final exam coming up. They've got a tough deadline at work. They're having marital problems. They're having financial problems. And, and then there's the deceitful or it's the riches. If it's not all life's problems, it's all of life's temptations. Man, if I just worked Sundays, I could make more money. And if I could do this job over here, and I could do this, and I really have time, I'll do church later. But man, I could make so much money right now. And all those things, the deceit, it's not riches. It's the deceitfulness of riches. What did, what did Paul tell Timothy? What is the root of all evil? Did he say money's the root of all evil? No, he said the love of money. That's where the deception comes in. And then and Jesus says, in case I missed everything, any, all these other things. <laughs> so there's all these cares you have, there's making money, and anything else you want to throw in, all of it can choke the word. It'll enter in and it'll choke the word. So the word's there, but as soon as it sprouts up, it really hasn't gone down deep in their heart. It's just kind of an intellectual exercise. The, the, the thorns come in and they choke it, and it proves what? Unfruitful. Jesus said, how will you know a true believer? By their fruit you shall know them. So someone who's unfruitful, even though they act all Christian, is not a true believer. So what do we do about people with this type of thorny soil? First of all, we stress that life is short and eternity is long. Life is short and eternity is long. To say, you know, you can do all these things, you can have all this fun, but what about for the, um, the billion years from now? What will you be doing then? Listen to what Jesus said. In Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, the promotion, the Corvette, the, the, the five-bedroom home with the three-car garage? What if he gets all that and he forfeits his own soul? That's what we need people to see. Jesus said to count the cost. So these three soils speak primarily of unbelievers because they're unfruitful. But there is an application, a secondary application for believers as well. Look at these three right here, Okay. And let's take, let's take the first one. First of all, Hosea 10, 12 says, sow yourselves righteous, sow as in plant seed, righteous, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground. Even though you're a believer and, and you have forgiveness and that's eternally secure, there are parts of your heart that can become hard. 
You can be hard to hearing about, you know, oh, I keep hearing these sermons about marriage. I keep hearing, I'm already a good husband. I don't need to hear that stuff. And you can harden your heart because of that. And the Bible says, take a shovel and turn that soil over. Break up and look at yourself. What part of your life do you feel like maybe you're getting hardened to? You know, we live in the greater Houston area where you drive through almost any busy intersection and there's someone holding a sign. We'll work for food. You know, anything helps. God bless. It's all that stuff. And anything to make you feel guilty and you're like, you start looking the other way or whatever. And you got to where you can look the other way and your heart has become hardened to the homeless and the poor. And you think, and what we do is we say, well, I know if I give them five bucks, I know what they're going to do. They'll go buy a Schlitz malt liquor bull. You're right. Don't give them five bucks. Don't give them cash. Keep a Ziploc bag in your car with water, a granola bar, a gospel track, a pair of socks, and give that to them. And so don't let your heart become hardened to them by, by the circumstance of all the shysters and the swindlers, but give them something they need. If they don't want it, then you probably know what their real problem is. Um, so there's rocky soil for believers as well. Make sure that the decision you made for, to trust Christ was for real. Over and over again, Paul pleads with people. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, he's talking to the church. And he says, examine who? Yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. I'm not trying to cause anybody to doubt your salvation who doesn't need to. But we should always examine our faith. We should always say, was that real? When I was nine, was that truly real? Is there fruit? Not that have I lived a perfect life since then, but has there been fruit in my life since I trusted Christ? Can I can point to a time in my life where Jesus turned my life around? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if any man is in Christ, what? He's a new creature. Can I can tell where there's a time in my life, even though I didn't become perfect, that doesn't happen until Jesus returns, but I can see a change in my life. He said to test yourselves. Or do you realize that this is about yourselves, that Christ is in you? That's the question. Is Christ in you? If so, there's fruit. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And then he, said, he says, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So he, Paul was always challenging believers to question their salvation to make it sure. So there's also a thorny soil application for believers. There's the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things. And all those things may be going on in your mind right now. Right now, you might be thinking about the mortgage instead of the message. You might be thinking about uh, your marriage instead of the word of God. You might be thinking about who in your family has cancer rather than focus on it. Are all those things important? Yes, absolutely. But don't let them choke the word that you're hearing this morning. When, you're, when you open your version or your paper Bible, paper Bible on Monday morning, don't let all your notifications and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok come up and distract you. Man, put it on airplane mode or whatever you got to do to focus on the Word of God. Because, yes, Satan loves to pluck up seed amongst unbelievers, but he does it to you and me as, just as well. There's a lot of distractions out there. So prepare your heart for worship through prayer and praise. Everything we did prior to me preaching was to get you ready, to get you focused like a laser beam ready saying, Lord, speak to me this morning. I need to hear your word. I need to leave here better than I came. It says to listen and behold. And he also warned them again, pay attention to what you hear. So there's six levels of listening. And you can go to this website right here if you want to read more about that. Some people have three, some people have five. I think this is the best list. There's passive listening. There's a, someone's talking, and all you're basically hearing is blah, 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 and you know, baseball, blah, 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 weather, blah, 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 but you're really not focused. And then there's responsive listening, where you're nodding, and you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, but you're really not catching the gist of what they're saying. You probably couldn't repeat most of it back. Uh, then there's selective listening, where you're just listening for the key points that you need to hear, but you're waiting for your turn to talk, so you're only listening selectively, and all the wives said amen, Right? Okay, uh, there's attentive listening where you're actually listening, you're, you are paraphrasing even back what they say to them, and you're showing that you're focused more so, but then there's active listening where you not only engage your intellect, but your emotions are getting involved well, with well, you're like, oh wow, that must have really hurt. 
man, I would hate to be in that situation. And you're showing that you're actively listening. And then there's the best kind. There's empathetic listening where we try to step out of our own perspective and view things from what the speaker's point of view is. And this is not only understanding what the person is saying and feeling, but empathizing with it and making every effort, effort to communicate this understanding to the speaker. Which kind of level does God deserve? Many times we read the word of God and it's like, yeah, blah, 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 praise him, whatever, live for him, righteousness, okay, good, good, good. thank you, I look at, check, I'm done, let's go to work. Man, good. God does not deserve that low level of listening. He deserves level six, empathetic listening. If the field is the world, does it make sense to keep sowing the seed in the garden? Think about that. We go to life groups and we share the word of God with each other, which is great. But what we should be doing is taking that seed, put it in our pockets so that we can go cast it out on soil to lost people. But you know what happens in many churches? Our pockets are full of seeds and we're not giving out any of them. We're sowing them in the garden here where, where stuff is already growing in the, in the church. He says, hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Let me ask you something this morning. If you don't know Christ as Savior, maybe you're still checking this Christianity thing out. You're not really sure whether you want to be whether you want to make public profession as a Christian and a follower of Christ, this saying right here, you've heard the word, the difference maker is, did you accept it? There's hearing, there's fruit, but what happens in the middle is accepting. You can hear the, the gospel every Sunday for 25 years and never accept it. You can hear it once today and choose not to accept it. My question for you today, will you choose to accept it or reject it? You see, whether you're a believer or not, he says that with the measure, the amount of listening, the level of listening you give, it will be measured to you. You give God a one, God's going to say, hey, who, what, who are you? I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. He says, and still more will be added. You know what? I know people who have been Christians for 15 years or more, and they still know this much Bible. It's because the measure they've put into it is this much, and that's what they're getting back. I've seen people get saved and in six months they know more scriptures than some people I know have been saved for six years. It's all in what you put into it. You have a responsibility. If you want more added to you, you want more peace from God, you want more prayers answered, you want to be more like Jesus, invest in scripture. Put your time into that. So which one of these applies to you this morning? Is your heart hard? Is there rocky things going on? Is there the cares of this world distracting you? John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Do you really hear what Jesus is saying to you this morning? Are you actively listening? Are you empathetically listening? Or are you just hearing the blah, blah, blah of church talk? It says if you, if you do that, if you accept what Jesus says, you believe and trust in him, what he did on the cross, you won't come in the judgment, but you will pass from the side of death over a line to the side of life. Have you ever made that decision? Have you passed from death unto life? Listen to what Jesus says about seed. He said, truly I say to you, unless a grain or a seed of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Who is Jesus talking about? Himself. Jesus is the seed, the grain of wheat. And said, we well, you know, here, me standing by myself as a grain of wheat doesn't do any good. But unless I, a seed brings forth life. When it dies, it goes in the ground. It, the seed literally dies, and out of the death of that seed comes forth life, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate seed. Not only is he the word of God, the seed that you hear, but he's the, he is the seed of God, the very grain that brings life to you and me. He died for you so that you don't have to die for eternity. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? I know it was a long message, but just give me a couple more minutes. Everyone who knows Christ as Savior, pray with me that God would open hearts, break up hard soil, and let the seed take root. It's a work of God. But if you're not sure you're saved, you've never given your life to Christ, you can make that certain today. 1 John says, these things have I written that you may know you have eternal life. God doesn't want you walking around wondering. If you want to be saved, you need to realize, number one, you're a sinner. You, you deserve death and punishment and hell. You deserve God's judgment. But the good news is, Jesus took your place. 
He went to that cross, and the nails that were in his hands should have been in yours. The crown of thorns on his head should have been on your head. The, thorn, the, 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 the sword in his side, the nails in the feet, the beating, the mocking, the punishment were all taken on your behalf. If you want to be saved, all you have to do is reach out to him in faith. You could pray a prayer. The prayer doesn't save you, but you could reach out to him in faith and just communicate with him something like this in your own words. Lord Jesus, I, I know I'm a sinner. The guilt haunts me daily. But Lord, I understand that you died in my place. So I'm going to accept your gift of salvation and let you forgive all my sins. And I give my life to you because you gave your life for me. I truly believe you died for me that you buried all my sins, and that you rose again victorious so that I could live forever with you. I believe in your death, your burial, and resurrection, and I give you my life right now in Jesus' name. If you, if you made that decision, man, please contact me. I'd love to talk to you about your next steps, about what it means to be a Christian. All right, we're going to do a question and answer time. So, man, if you don't mind, come up and help me with that. That'd be great. And you can text in your questions anytime. Any question about Revolution Church, um, a question about communion we just did, a question about the transition, about the message I just preached, anything you want at all. You can't ask me why did the Astros lose. I, don't, I can't answer that question for you. But uh, ask any question that you want to ask about that. I guess you need my phone, don't we? Just a little bit. Okay. All right. There you go. So text them in even now as we're talking if you like. wants to know if Pastor Gary was hurt by his family when they told him that he preaches too much when he was a kid? Um, that's a good question, because I think I shared that last week, was it? Um, that, yeah, my dad told me I was a fanatic and I was taking all this too, too far. Um, it only hurt me just because I knew I'd, I wanted to see my dad in heaven. And um, I'll give you the short version. Um, so my dad was an agnostic um, my whole life, and when I told my dad, so I got saved at nine, at 15, I told my dad I wanted to be a pastor, and he said, Gary, that is the dumbest decision I've ever heard anybody make, <laughs> and uh, so I went off to Bible college, and he just could not believe that I was there, and that I was, anyway, so long story short, um, I invited my family to come to ordination at age 24, and my mom drugged my dad to it, but my dad was totally blown away by the preaching of Berean and all the, the love of the people he met, very Christian, uh, godly businessmen who made an impact on his life that weekend. And Sunday morning when the gospel was preached, he white-knuckled the pews, if you've heard that phrase before, as tears were flowing out of his eyes, but he would not go forward. Sunday night service, same thing. And Sunday night after church, I said to my dad, I said, what do you, what do you think of all this? And he, said, and he looked at me, stopped, we were walking, he stopped and looked at me and said, Gary, I know that what you believe is right. I'm just not ready to make a commitment. So that was my ordination weekend, and since I was ordained, I could do funerals. And three months later, in December, I did my first funeral, and it was his. And so maybe between October and December, he trusted Christ, but I don't know. But I, I don't think I felt the rejection of it. Maybe I did, but I, what I remember most is being sad that my family didn't want to hear about the love of Jesus that I was so excited about. What does it mean to be fruitful? How will we know if we're fruitful? That's great, and I, I would have I cut something out of the sermon because I, I didn't want it to be longer than it already was. For those of you first time, I only usually preach ten minutes. Um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, so there's three types of fruit. There's action fruit, attitude fruit, and addition fruit. Okay, the A's help you remember that. Action fruit. Do you behave like Jesus? Now, not mean are you perfect, but you know you see your actions, you give to the poor, you, you help, you love your neighbor as yourself, you do those things. Attitude fruit, you could, on, falls under Galatians 5, 22 and 23, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance. Those nine, that when those attitudes of patience and love and in goodness, they're showing in your life, that's, a, that's the fruit of the Spirit. And then the third, addition fruit, Jesus says, you know, bear much fruit to my account. And Paul's talked about how one of the churches was his fruit, when other people's lives come to Christ because of you, that's, those three things there are the kind of fruits you want to be looking for. And that's the one we usually lack in. We, we see our attitude get better when we know Christ. We seem to get our actions better, but we can't seem to get the addition going. And it's because Satan really fights the hardest on that one. Could you explain how many years it has been since God has made the earth? 
had a discussion with a friend recently because we went to a dinosaur exhibit and that the dinosaurs were carbon dated to be around millions of years ago. So the question is, could you explain how many years it has been since God has made the earth? Okay. I believe, I believe Jesus believed in a literal Adam and Eve and he rose from the dead. So I'm with Jesus. I believe that the earth is approximately seven to 10,000 years old. But I believe, and you can say, well, you're just taking that by faith. I believe in science. I think the science backs it up, okay? I heard a study recently by some, several scientists about they were studying um, um, mutations. And they would study three generations of adults, uh, um, grandparents, parents, and their kids, okay? And in every set of three generation, three age groups, and that, that right there, I guess, um, they found approximately 63 mutations, and many of the mutations were overcome, you know, because of the, the recessive and dominant gene, but the, the latent mutation was still there. Sometimes it did manifest in deformities, but, and sometimes it manifested in cancers and other things like that, but they found approximately 63 mutations in every generation. Well, mathematically, if you take that all the way back to billions of years, the human race would have totally corrupted. We would be walking around totally disfigured, if, if, but you trace back the mutations back to a perfect Adam and Eve 7,000 years ago, it works out perfectly. Another illustration, um, you all remember the Apollo 13 space module landing, okay? And it, it came down and you had the, the rocket fired, bursting, slowing it down as it's fallen earth. And it had those big snow boots, like circles, pads on all four corners because they, they thought they were gonna land in about six and a half feet of dust. So they had these snow boots on and when Neil Armstrong Put, strong put out the ladder, it only came halfway down. And then he, remember he climbed down and jumped in slow motion in the spacesuit? Because they calculated, they said, we know how much atmospheric dust falls to Earth at the rate. And so we know it's approximately a quarter, I mean, an eighth of an inch for every thousand years. So if the Earth is billions of years old, there's probably six and a half feet worth of dust on there. So we have to be prepared to walk around and stomp in like snow boots and, and have the module not sink into the dust. Well, there was approximately an inch and three quarters on the, the moon, which is the equivalent of about 7,000 years, okay? Um, we can talk about genetics. We could talk about space. We could talk about the magnetic field of the earth. We know at what rate it's depreciating. Well, if you cycle that back even more than a billion years, you would have an unlivable magnetic field on the earth. But if you take it back 7,000 years ago, it's perfectly livable. So the, I, I'm, yes, I'm, I, don't, I think the science is on our side. I don't have a problem with that. This is a statement. They have never gotten the known age of something carbon dated correctly. Yes. In fact, one example, several examples, but one time they took a live oyster and they said it was 14 million years old. It was alive. Okay. They've carved Mount St. Helens up in Washington, just erupted in our lifetime. Okay. They've sampled rocks that were formed from the lava and say they're millions of years old. Well, we saw it on television. It can't be millions of years old. So carbon-14 dating is unreliable. They'll say, well, it's this old because the machine says it is. Well, how do we know how old all it? Because it was found in this strata, which means everything found in this strata is 14 million years old. And they do circular reasoning to justify it. That's actually my question. You know, based on what we heard today. You need to text it in. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> based on what we heard today, if you identify yourself as anything other than good soil, how do you not get caught up in just like feeling guilty about that? Like what's the best way to move forward to glorify God and to do something that really matters about it instead of just being like, oh, I'm terrible, I'm thorny soil. You know what I mean? Oh, like, that's, that's a great question. That's a great question. So like take, for example, someone whose life has been beaten upon. You feel like you've been walked upon. You've been abused, mistreated, and you feel like you struggle with that. The whole beauty of the gospel is God takes all those negatives and turns them into positives. And what I mean by that is many of you wear a cross around your neck, jewelry. You're wearing an instrument of death where people were brutally murdered and crucified on. And some people, like Jehovah's Witness, say, well, why are you wearing that? that that's like someone wearing a gun. If your dad was killed by a gun, you're wearing a gun on your neck or you know, an electric chair around your neck. But that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus took something totally grotesque, ugly, and horrifying and turned it into something beautiful. And that's how he paid for our sins. So now the cross went from something horrifying to something beautiful. And the same can be done. If you, again, let's just say you were abused in your, your, your childhood years. God can take that 
he can trade beauty for ashes. He can take something painful, and now you use that to minister grace to someone else. It plants seed in their life, okay? So God takes our, 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 our scars and turns them into something beautiful. Um, there was something else I was going to say about that. But it's, it's, oh, it was Romans 8, 28. God works what? All things, even the painful things in your past, together for good. Not just unconditionally, though. Those who are called, love him and are called according to his purpose. If you're loving God and you're seeing his purpose in that tapestry, then all those things become beautiful. If you're not loving God, it's like, oh, why, why did that happen to me? And it's, you're like Eeyore and woe is me. Another question here. Could the person that preaches from envy and rivalry described in Philippians 1, 15 through 18, bear fruit? In verse 18, Paul says he rejoices when Christ is proclaimed even in pretense, mm -hmm. and then he actually listed the scripture. Here. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the gospel is the gospel. Let's say, let's say, as a, go back to Jesus' passage. Let's say a farmer, he's like, man, that farmer next to me, he ain't going to outgrow me. My crops are going to be better than his, and he's mad. He's in competition with the guy next door, and I hope his crops fail. Is his seed going to work? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Doesn't matter who throws the seed. Paul's saying, preachers, even preachers are like, I'm going to have a bigger church. But if they're preaching the gospel and people are getting saved, they're gonna, the reward is taken away, but the, the fruit is still there because the seed is the seed. Now, most preachers who are preaching out of hate and envy aren't preaching the true gospel, but there are some that are. And some of us know situations like that where it was a competition. You know, they have the biggest church, but people are still getting saved. So God will judge them based on their motive, but the result is still the same. Okay. I see it coming in, but I, they have it in your husband. Sometimes those never come in. Oh, okay. I don't know. You know who you are. Get it in. <laughs> it's, they're not here. <laughs> Any others? No. All right, cool. Okay. All right, great. All right, and again, give our guests a hand for being here this morning. We're glad you're here. Take time to talk to them and welcome them. If you'll go to the next slide for me on that. Let's stand, and we're going to read a verse of Scripture as our charge to go out into the world and be the church. Jude 24 and 25, read together with me. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of the, his glory with great joy, and only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, let be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. And if you want to help with stuff, see us, we'll let you know.